Civil War Talk Radio. Ask people with a passing knowledge of the Civil War where it ended, and they'll tell you Appomattox Courthouse, of course, where Lee surrendered. Our guest today has more than a passing knowledge of the Civil War, and he knows better. We'll be talking about the North Carolina Campaign of 1865 and the surrender of Joseph Johnston's army with Mark Bradley, author of This Astounding Close, The Road to Bennett Place. Join us for our conversation with Mark Bradley on Civil War Talk Radio. Are you a busy event planner, an auction chair, or development coordinator? Well, AuctionHelp.com is designed for you. Find out why hundreds of nonprofit organizations just like yours have chosen AuctionHelp.com to take the stress out of the benefit auction process. Hi, I'm Russ Dalnack, professional auctioneer, and I'm also someone who can help you coordinate your next auction. That's right. We have a special staff of auction management experts to give you that auctioneer to, to get the right person behind the microphone that will encourage your guests to be generous. We can also meet with your auction committee throughout the whole planning process. We're going to give you helpful hints that could add as much as 25% to next year's totals. We're going to train and monitor your auction volunteers at night of the event. We're going to help you run your auction, including the registration, the data entry, the filing, the cashiering, the recording, where to get those valuable items, how to develop your audience, and all those things. Log on, auctionhelp.com. We're here to help with your next auction. Insurance, paid vacation, taxes. Having a full-time secretary means you have a lot of things to deal with, besides having an employee. Sick leave, lunch breaks, holidays. And those challenges can change from day to day. Training time, mistakes, oh, family emergencies. A good secretary can be hard to find. What I need is someone who's reliable, efficient, and who can get it done yesterday. <laughs> what I need is a secretary 24-7. What if you could have a secretary on call 24 hours a day, 7 days a week? What if you could dictate letters with a phone call, have them transcribed and back to you within 24 hours? Add to that scanning, word processing, email management, and a whole lot more. Your 24-hour secretary does exist at www.the24hoursecretary.com. If you're an entrepreneur, a small business professional, a corporation, or in the legal or medical fields, the 24-Hour Secretary is your virtual office manager. www.the24hoursecretary.com World Talk Radio, the number one source for informative talk on the World Wide Web. World Talk Radio. Interested in advertising on any of our shows? Please click the Advertise link on the homepage or send an email to ads at worldtalkradio.com or you can click on the Sponsor This Show link on any of the show pages. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking to you from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina but speaking entirely for myself, as my guest will speak for himself, and the university on its time can speak for itself, not responsible for one another. Today we're going to talk about the North Carolina campaign of 1865, and our guest is Mark Bradley, author of this astounding close, The Road to Bennett Place, a study of that event. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm fine, Jerry. Thank you. Good to have you here. Good to be here. Um, 
this campaign that you've written about, did, you've also written a book on the Battle of Bentonville, uh, as well as this. So you, safe to say this is something you know a good deal about. I think I do at this point. Well, let, let me start with some background. What, what got you interested in, in this campaign in particular and the Civil War in general? Well, Jerry, I first started researching the Carolinas campaign around 15 years ago. Um, my first visit to Bentonville Battlefield was a real eye-opener. Um, I didn't realize that a battle on that scale had been fought in North Carolina. Um, my eyes were usually focused on the Virginia Theater and the battles in Maryland and Pennsylvania. And when I noticed that um, <clears throat> excuse me, the battlefield at Bentonville encompassed more than 6,000 acres and involved nearly uh, 90,000 Union and Confederate troops, I realized that we're dealing with a, a much larger scale than I had imagined, and there really wasn't uh, much in the way of secondary sources, um, recent sources on the battle, aside from a North Carolina Historical Review article and a few other short pieces, and I realized I was going to have to delve into the primary sources and, and learn about the battle that way, and, and it just sort of progressed, and, and then I began thinking in terms of writing a book, and I guess the rest is history. Huh. Well, I mean, it is uh, certainly a large battle and, and a very much understudied one. But let me, let me start with, I guess, the hardest question, which is uh, why study this battle or this campaign? And uh, this being Super Bowl weekend, uh, <laughs> I will use a, a football analogy for our American listeners, and I know there are people around the globe who, who listen, but isn't the Battle of Bentonville sort of a, uh, a Hail Mary pass? It, there's two minutes to go. The home team is down by four touchdowns. And you take one last incredible gamble that is unlikely to work. And in this case, even if it does work, the game's over. Uh, well, to, to carry your football. Point, I, I, I turn off the TV at this point in the game. <laughs> well, actually, many historians have done just that, Jerry. They turn off the TV in January of 1865, and uh, they don't pay much attention to what happens after Fort Fisher. And, um, and why should we? Well, I, I really see it differently because when you look at the Carolinas campaign, you have to think in larger terms than just the so-called Western Theater. By that time, the Western Theater has extended all the way to almost the Atlantic coast. You have to look up to the Virginia Theater, as William T. Sherman did, when he began the campaign in February of 1865. And it was Sherman's intention to link up with the forces under the command of Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant uh, that were besieging Richmond and Petersburg and just slowly crushing the life out of General Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. And I see the Battle of Bentonville. In fact, I see the operations in North Carolina leading up to Bentonville as part of a larger campaign. I look at it the way the commanders did in March of 1865, and I really see that <clears throat> as the first, as the initial actions in that campaign that results in Lee's defeat at Appomattox Courthouse. I, I, I suppose the, the generals involved, you, you say so you look at it from the point of view of those involved, like Sherman or Johnston, and one difference with my analogy, I guess, is that there's no scoreboard clock. They don't know there's two minutes left. In the That's game. exactly right. They don't know that 
um, at Bentonville that the uh, surrendered Appomattox is going to take place in just three weeks. And there's also the idea, too, that uh, at least this is what Johnston says after the war. We don't really know what he's thinking at the time, although um, I'm sure he doesn't hold much hope out. In fact, he tells Lee just that, that it's already too late to stop Sherman. But uh, Johnston later says that he hoped that at the very least he could coax, coerce better terms from the Federals if he showed that his army still possessed its old elan and fighting spirit, that it was not beaten. And that was another thought that was lurking in the back of his mind. And then also there's the idea that Johnston's forces could link up with Lee's somewhere near the Virginia border, turn on Sherman, defeat Sherman, and then turn on Grant. Of course, at this point, Confederates don't have many strategic options left, and this is really the only one that is at all viable. And no. that's why I'm so fascinated by the Battle of Bentonville, not simply because uh, I see it as uh, a last gasp hope for the Confederates. It really isn't. They, by this time, it would have taken a miracle for them to, to uh, emerge victorious. But there's also something else that's involved, too. It's a kind of a redemption of Joseph E. Johnston in the spring of 1865, a general whom historians dismiss as retreating Joe. Yet in the spring of 1865, we see a very different Joseph E. Johnston, one who is now serving directly under Robert E. Lee, who's the general-in-chief of the Confederate forces, a very prudently aggressive Joseph E. Johnston, very different from the Johnston of 1863-1864. Johnston, uh, his reputation certainly does vary. You get those who regard him as the the general who could have saved the Confederacy had he not been replaced by Hood. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, but then you get those who regard him as, as one of the most overrated and uh, uh, unsuccessful generals of the war. So you you would be closer to the former camp, I gather. I think I would... I would um say that I'm probably in the camp, a third camp, that would say that the prevailing view of Johnston is overly simplistic. Um, there is a tendency to, I think, uh, react too strongly to this this idea that Johnston was the savior, or the conf potential savior of the Confederacy. I don't, I don't subscribe to that idea, but I do believe that his uh, Johnston's conduct of the Carolinas campaign in the spring of 1865 indicates that uh, that given the right conditions, that he could be an aggressive, uh, decisive commander. And I think that uh, most historians just conveniently sweep his actions in 1865 into the dustbin of history because it just doesn't fit with their paradigm of the Johnston who wouldn't fight in Mississippi in 63 or in Georgia in 64. So that is why... I, I am interested in the Joe Johnston of 1865, trying to reconcile what he does in 65 to his earlier conduct. And so, again, if, if people paid more attention to this campaign, we might have a, a different overall view of Johnston. I think they would have a, a more nuanced view. Mm -hmm. The tendency is to take a polemic view of Johnston. You either see him as, as the man who could have saved the Confederacy had Jefferson Davis held him. I think that's wrong. On the other extreme, the Joe Johnston, who would not fight under any circumstances whatsoever, is also overly simplistic. 
And I think I'm just in the camp that says, let's have a more nuanced view of the general. Well, often the, the truth is often found in the middle. Um, now, Richard McMurray, who uh, uh, you know well, I believe, oh, yes. is, uh, is one of the Johnston, I won't say bashers, but he's no fan of, of uh, Joe Johnston. Uh, and he has certainly written a great deal on the Western theater. But to uh, to move along, one of the things that struck me reading your book was how the South, even in, in this last extremity of 1865, was really hurt by the infighting among its leadership. Yes. Uh, you've, you've got not only Johnston involved here, but sort of an all-star list of, of uh, Confederate generals, Bragg and Beauregard, mm-hmm. uh, Wade Hampton, uh, and, and so on, and they don't get along too well. Well, actually, it's interesting because when Johnston assumes command in February of 1865, it's a very different situation. Um, I think Richard McMurray, to, to mention his name again, mm-hmm. points out very correctly that uh, even though there was uh, quite a bit of dissension in the ranks of the officer corps in the Army of Tennessee, particularly in the high command, uh, as the Atlanta campaign progressed and as the Army of Tennessee retreated to the gates of Atlanta, by 1865 the situation was very different. You know, the twin debacles at Franklin and Nashville had occurred. Hood was in disgrace. He had resigned from the command of the Army of Tennessee. And now Johnston, oddly enough, comes in, and he is seen as something of a savior by um, his proponents in the Confederate Congress and by many of his subordinates. He hadn't have gotten along so well with uh, William J. Hardy, his senior corps commander, during the Atlanta campaign, but they forge a very cordial working relationship in 1865. And then Johnston and Hampton happened to be very good friends. That began um, in the Peninsula Campaign of 1862, and that friendship actually deepens during the Carolinas Campaign of uh, March of 1865. And then, finally, the idea of the Army of Tennessee. Hood had accused the Army of Tennessee of losing its fighting spirit by fighting in the entrenchments in the Atlanta campaign. But fighting under Johnston, the men of the Army of Tennessee apparently uh, undergo a kind of a, a, a reinvigoration, and they prove at Bentonville that they will still fight as long as they fight under a commander they trust and believe in. So not only is this really a chance for Johnston to redeem himself, but it's a chance for many of his subordinate commanders and the Army of Tennessee contingent at Bentonville to do just the same. That's interesting. When I was doing my research on the Army of the Ohio, uh, later the Army of the Cumberland, the the sense of Army identity and Army... uh, uh, self-esteem mm-hmm. comes up. The 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 Ohio men, the Cumberland men, feel themselves the you know, second-class citizens next to the Union Army of the Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And at Missionary Ridge, part of what motivates them to go up that hill without orders is to show Grant and everyone else that they are not losers, and and they are determined to reestablish themselves, which they do. And so we see kind of the same thing here with the Army of the Tennessee. Oh, absolutely. Tennessee, rather, uh, at Bentonville, reestablishing its its own uh, reputation. No, you're absolutely right. And uh, Johnston even made that uh, plain in a, um, um, a dispatch he had written to General Lee um, after the Battle of Bentonville that uh, 
he said that uh, the Army of Tennessee had disproved the, sla- the slanders written against them. And he's referring to General Hood's report, which had been submitted to the Confederate Congress um, just a few weeks before. So, yes, there was definitely a, a sense that uh, both Johnston and his Army of Tennessee contingent had something to prove. And when I'm speaking of the Army of Tennessee, the addition that appeared at Bentonville in 1865, this is a very different entity from the army that Johnston commanded in May of 1864. Now, Johnston led, depending on who, who, which source you read, he led maybe 70,000 troops at the beginning of the Atlanta campaign. At Bentonville, the Army of Tennessee contingent would have comprised maybe a division in the old Army of Tennessee. They numbered around 4,500. That was all that was left, at least all that reached Johnston in North Carolina in time to fight at Bentonville on March the 19th, 1865. Um, but this was, this was really the, the solid core of that army, what was left. And uh, they actually comprised just one component. There were actually four different elements to Johnston's army. And Johnston literally had to piece together this army from the debris of other Confederate forces in the southeastern United States. And he had to do this in a very short period of time, within three weeks. Now, one of those components was Bragg's uh, group from around Fort Fisher, is that right? That's correct. The Department of North Carolina troops, uh, consisting of, of Hoke's division, and and the largest brigade in Johnston's army, the North Carolina Junior Reserves Brigade, which consists by this time of around 1,217 and 18-year-old boys. And even the field commanders were barely um, uh, old enough to vote. Uh, in fact... Um, one of the field commanders, Major Walter Clark, was 18, and a commander of one of the regiments, Colonel John Hinsdale, was just 21. Uh, you're con- consuming the seed corn when you're putting your exactly, in. and and you could also say they were robbing the grave as well because there were several senior reserve regiments that fought at Bentonville, uh, consisting of men from 45 to 55. Yeah. Well, it, it's a, a desperate situation, obviously, by 1865, uh, by the spring, and, and calls for desperate measures on the part of the Confederacy. We'll continue our conversation with Mark Bradley in just a moment when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 